The next set of ASCO papers focused on hematologic cancers, and Dr. Brad Call began the discussion by commenting on a major step forward in therapy of acute promyelocytic leukemia. This was a presentation at the plenary session. It was an intergroup trial, North American intergroup trial, for patients with untreated acute promyelocytic leukemia. It was led by the CALGB with participation of all the major cooperative groups. And the research question in this study was, what would be the contribution of the addition of arsenic trioxide to standard acute promyelocytic leukemia therapy? And it was a randomized phase three trial. And the way the treatment worked is that eligible patients received a standard induction therapy with all transretinoic acid, donorubicin, and cytarabine. And after that, patients were randomly assigned to go on to either a standard consolidation, which consisted of two additional cycles of donorubicin and atra, or two cycles of arsenic trioxide followed by the atra plus donorubicin. So the way the arsenic trioxide dosing worked is patients received a dose of 0.15 milligrams per kilogram per day for five consecutive days for five continuous weeks. And that was repeated for two cycles, and there was a two-week break in between those two courses of arsenic trioxide. Once patients finished the consolidation therapy, there was a second randomization evaluating two different maintenance treatment strategies, but this particular abstract did not analyze the two maintenance strategies at all. The follow-up is not long enough to really be able to tell a difference between the two maintenance strategies, so I won't go into any further detail about the two maintenance strategies. This analysis was simply looking at the contribution of the addition of arsenic to the consolidation therapy. What do we know in terms of background, in terms of what's been seen previously with arsenic in this disease? So arsenic trioxide has very impressive single-agent activity for relapsed acute promyelocytic leukemia with uh, complete remission rates somewhere in the order of 70 to 90% for patients with relapsed acute promyelocytic leukemia. That was the impetus for taking arsenic trioxide and working it into frontline therapy. Do we know anything about mechanism of action? Well, it appears to disrupt the fusion protein that is characteristic of acute promyelocytic leukemia. So there's this fusion protein called PML-RAR-alpha, and that is the result of the 1517 translocation, which is seen in virtually all cases of acute promyelocytic leukemia, and it's that abnormal fusion protein that leads to the arrest of these cells at the promyelocytic stage of differentiation. And by disrupting the formation of this fusion protein, the cells are then allowed to mature normally. It's not all that different from how all transretinoic acid works in this disease, actually. So can you talk about what was seen? Because it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So it was a very large trial. Like I said, it was a randomized phase three study. There were 582 patients enrolled, and 537 were deemed eligible. And the two patient populations were very well balanced for baseline characteristics. There were no imbalances as a result of the randomization. And really the bottom line of the study or the take-home message is that the addition of the arsenic trioxide improved the three-year event-free survival. So in the group that did not receive the arsenic trioxide, the three-year event-free survival was 66%. And for the group that did receive arsenic trioxide, 
the three-year event free survival was 81%, and that difference was statistically significant. It also seemed like it affected survival also. Yeah, if you looked at the overall survival at three years, the difference was 86% for the arsenic group versus 79% for the group that did not receive the arsenic trioxide. And there was a strong trend towards statistical significance with a p-value of 0.06. So what was the takeaway, which sort of seems pretty straightforward, but what was your take on it? I think this study provides very strong evidence that the addition of arsenic trioxide and the dose and schedule that was used in this particular study can add additional benefit above and beyond what we would consider a standard therapy for untreated acute promyelocytic leukemia. The toxicities were fairly predictable and manageable. One of the big concerns with arsenic trioxide is QT prolongation, but that was not seen in any patients in this trial. Arsenic trioxide can cause a little bit of fluid retention. It can cause a rash, but those side effects were very manageable. And I think this trial represents a true therapeutic advance for this kind of acute leukemia. Good to see. Let's talk a little bit about paper 7008 in CLL. So this presentation was from the leukemia group at MD Anderson. It was looking at long-term follow-up of a large cohort of patients with untreated chronic lymphocytic leukemia, treated with their FCR regimen, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, rituximab. They had previously reported a cohort of about 260 patients in the Journal of Clinical Oncology about two years ago. This particular analysis now has 300 patients and more mature follow-up, and that was the reason for the presentation at ASCO this year. So just to remind you of the dose and schedule, the cyclophosphamide dose in this regimen is 250 milligrams per meter squared with each cycle. The fludarabine dose is 25 milligrams per meter squared with each cycle, and they're given on three consecutive days. The courses are repeated every 28 days. The rituximab is given on day one of each cycle. For cycle one, they gave 375 milligrams per meter squared, and for all subsequent cycles, they administered 500 milligrams per meter squared, which is a slightly higher rituximab dose than we're used to using in lymphoma, for example. They had 300 patients. It was a somewhat young group, and I think that has to be factored into the analysis when considering the impact of this therapy. The median age was 57 years. The median age, probably in the general population for CLL that received treatment is probably closer to 70 years of age. Their population was slightly weighted more toward rye stage 0 to 2 patients as opposed to stage 3 and 4 patients. So they might have had a slightly favorable patient population in this study. What they do show, however, though, is that the overall response rate and the complete response rate for this regimen is higher than any other response rates reported previously. The overall response rate to the regimen was 95%. And the complete response rate was 72%. And again, that's substantially higher than reported for other regimens in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What do you think about their conclusion that, quote, FCR is the most active regimen in CLL? It probably is the most active regimen in terms of response rate and response duration. They did an analysis where they compared their FCR results to historical comparisons from the MD Anderson Cancer Center. They compared it to a large cohort of patients who had received fludarabine cytoxin or fludarabine mitoxantrone and another cohort that had received single-agent fludarabine. And they showed about a 10% improvement in absolute terms in overall survival at five years for the FCR regimen. I guess the one caveat I would throw in there is that people who have experience with this regimen will attest that it is extremely myelosuppressive. 
and you have to be very careful when administering it, particularly to older patients. Patients can run into significant problems with cytopenias toward the end of the planned six cycles of therapy, and these cytopenias can persist, and that's one of the things that they report in this abstract is one of the late complications. Late cytopenias were noted in about 20% of their patient population, which was persisting even five years after treatment. So certainly there are some patients in whom I would say this regimen would not be appropriate. What tends to be your first-line therapy in CLL? For first-line therapy, I still continue to prefer fludarabine and rituxan without the cyclophosphamide administered unless I have a young patient with highly aggressive CLL. And by aggressive, I'm saying based on prognostic factors such as a very high beta-2 microglobulin, an elevated LDH, a rapid lymphocyte doubling time. The reason that I do not use the FCR regimen routinely is that most of the patients I see are somewhat older. They have trouble tolerating this regimen. But I should note that the comparison between FR and FCR is about to be done in a randomized clinical trial done through the U.S. Cooperative Group mechanism. Who's the lead organization? CLGB will be coordinating that study. And what's the eligibility and randomization? So it will be patients with untreated CLL who require therapy based on the NCI definition of requiring therapy. It's a three-arm study that will compare FCR versus FR versus a third arm in which the induction will be FR followed by a Revlimid maintenance therapy. And that trial is very close to activation is my understanding. Well, it sounds like something that ought to accrue patients pretty reasonably well. I would think so. There were a couple of papers presented on CML and desatinib back-to-back, 7004 and 7005. Can you talk about those papers? Sure. So one of the desatinib papers was published by Dr. Shaw, and this was a study that tried to look at the dose and schedule of desatinib, really trying to optimize it. The dose and schedule that has been worked out in previous studies was a dose of 70 milligrams orally twice daily. And that dose and schedule in patients who are resistant or intolerant of imatinib produced very impressive response rates, including complete hematologic remissions in 90% and major cytogenetic remissions in 40 to 50%. And so that was the dose that led to approval of that agent, 70 milligrams POBID. But in looking at some of the phase one data and phase two data in some of the studies, there is a suggestion that once daily dosing might produce equal efficacy with less side effects. And so that was really the rationale for the initiation of this particular study, which was a very large international randomized phase three trial that actually has four arms to it. And so the trial is for patients with CML who are deemed resistant or intolerant to imatinib. And the randomization is between 140 milligrams daily and 100 milligrams daily. And then within those total doses, patients are randomized to receive it either on a BID dosing schedule or a daily dosing schedule. So in other words, the four treatment arms are either 100 milligrams PO daily, 50 milligrams PO BID, 140 milligrams PO daily, or 70 milligrams PO BID. And so they reported fairly mature results from this trial at the meeting. The randomization worked. The patients were very well balanced for all the important baseline characteristics. And really the take-home message from this presentation is that there was no 
clinically meaningful difference in most of the major endpoints between the four different dosing strategies. If you look at the probability of getting a complete hematologic remission, it was about 90% for each of the four dosing arms. The probability of getting a major cytogenetic remission was about 60 to 65% for all four arms. The probability of getting a complete cytogenetic remission was right about 45 or 50% for all dosing arms. One very interesting finding of the study is then when the authors looked at progression-free survival, there's actually a slight but statistically significant advantage for desatinib given at a dose of 100 milligrams daily over 70 milligrams POBID. And I think this was kind of a surprise. Desatinib has a relatively short half-life, and I think there was some concern that a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with a short half-life would be less effective. But this study, in fact, shows the opposite, that a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with a short half-life can be just as effective or even more effective than drugs with a longer half-life or drugs with a short half-life administered on a more frequent dosing strategy. The once daily dosing at 100 milligrams per day was better tolerated. There were less grade 3 and 4 toxicities compared with BID dosing, and there was less thrombocytopenia. There were also less dose interruptions and dose reductions with 100 milligram per daily dose. Although there were actually a considerable number of dose interruptions and reductions with all the doses, including 100 milligrams. Yes, that is a true statement. I think because of cytopenias in particular, there can be dose interruptions. It's very common when one of these drugs is initiated in the patient. As the malignant clone is eradicated, a lot of times transient cytopenias will develop which can cause a temporary dose interruption and sometimes a dose reduction. But usually that will resolve over time as the malignant clone is eradicated and normal hematopoiesis is then allowed to flourish. Any other comments about the study? Well, the conclusion of the authors, and it would be hard to argue with them, is that desatinib at 100 milligrams per day is the optimal dose and schedule for chronic phase CML. And that's a very nice finding. Once daily dosing is easier to take for patients than twice daily, easier in terms of compliance, and it's better tolerated. So this was an excellent study and a very interesting conclusion. Yeah, with very practical clinical applications. What about the other paper, 7005? So this is a smaller study, a phase two study, in which accrual is ongoing, so the results are not as mature, but it's still very interesting nonetheless. This is a trial from the group at MD Anderson looking at initial therapy with desatinib for untreated chronic phase CML. So the previous studies with desatinib had looked at imatinib failures, but because that data with desatinib looks very promising and because desatinib can work in a fairly high percentage of imatinib failures, it's natural to do a study looking at desatinib as initial therapy for chronic phase CML, and that's what this presentation was from the group at MD Anderson. So this was a trial in which they reported results on a little over 30 patients, and patients were to receive desatinib at a dose of 100 milligrams daily, and they were randomized to receive it either once daily or 50 milligrams twice daily. And the major endpoint of the study was to look at major molecular remissions at 12 months. So they have 34 patients who would be considered valuable for response at the time they reported this information, and 85% of that group achieved a complete cytogenetic remission, meaning no abnormal metaphases detected by routine karyotyping. And that data looks a little bit better than you would expect with historical controls treated with imatinib. They also are noticing a very high 
rate of molecular responses somewhere in the 30 to 40% range, which is very comparable to imatinib. Molecular remissions can take longer to develop, sometimes 12 months or longer, and so they only have about 20 patients in this cohort who are out 12 months at the time of this analysis. So the study is a bit immature to make pronouncements about the effectiveness of the drug relative to, say, imatinib, but certainly I think based on these early results, there is plenty of reason to think that dasatinib could be equivalent or perhaps even superior to imatinib, and I'm sure we'll see data from randomized clinical trials in the future that will compare dasatinib to imatinib as frontline therapy for untreated CML. Are any trials like that up and running right now? You know, there might be. I'm not sure of that, Neil. I just don't know. Would there be any theoretical rationale to combine dasatinib and imatinib? That's a good question. Yeah, I think there could be some theoretical rationale for the combination if one believes that targeting abnormal tyrosine kinases with multiple agents would be less likely to lead to the development of resistance. We're probably a fairly long ways away from trying that in the frontline setting, although I certainly could see that happening for patients who develop resistant to one tyrosine kinase inhibitor where a strategy might be to try a combination. Although the fact is there are a multitude of these small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors in development right now from various companies. And so I think you're going to see a lot of small studies in which one tyrosine kinase inhibitor doesn't work. The patient will simply go on to a different one. So we could be a ways away from getting into the combination studies because there's still so much more work to do with a lot of the single agents in the pipeline. Let's talk a little bit about NHL. I want to ask you first about the presentation by Dr. Coiffier of the GILA study. So this was long-term follow-up from the famous GILA study. This was a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2002, which proved that rituximab added to CHOP chemotherapy was better than CHOP chemotherapy for elderly patients with untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And really the point of this analysis was to see if the major benefit that was achieved with rituximab CHOP was durable with now seven years of follow-up. There really wasn't a lot of new information in this particular presentation other than the long-term follow-up data. And so really, just to give you the bottom line, the substantial improvement in event-free survival and overall survival that was seen in the initial report is durable with seven years of follow-up, with about a 10 to 15% improvement in overall survival in absolute terms when you look out at five, six, and seven years. The benefit in terms of overall survival translated across different risk stratification categories, whether the patients had high-risk disease or low-risk disease, according to the International Prognostic Index, or whether they had favorable or unfavorable biologic parameters, such as BCL2 overexpression. So really the benefit of the addition of rituximab is seen in all subgroups of patients in this trial And that benefit is persistent at five, six, and seven years. Now, one thing that they did mention in their conclusion that was kind of interesting is the response and follow-up of the patients based on age. And particularly, they looked at 60 to 69, 70 to 74, but also 75 to 80. And you don't see that kind of breakout very often in clinical research data. What were your take on those findings? I'm glad they did that analysis because lymphoma in the elderly and, frankly, cancer in the elderly is becoming a bigger and bigger issue as the baby boomer population continues to age. And diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is a curable cancer. 
yet it requires fairly aggressive therapy to achieve cure. And I think it's very important for physicians in practice to know that patients who are in their 70s, early 70s and late 70s, with this disease can be cured with the administration of full-dose CHOP chemotherapy, and they show that in this analysis. The outcomes are not quite as good as patients get older, but still there is a substantial fraction of patients, even in the 75 to 80-year-old group, who are cured with rituximab CHOP chemotherapy with the plateau occurring somewhere around the 40% range, so a significant percentage of elderly patients with this disease can be cured with contemporary treatment strategies. What's the oldest patient you've treated with RCHOP? Uh, probably about 84, 85. My own view on treating the elderly patients with RCHOP is I almost always will try it because you'll never know if an individual patient can tolerate rituximab CHOP unless you try it. And sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised and they will get through it better than you would have predicted. If I'm administering rituxan CHOP to a very elderly patient and it becomes clear after a few cycles that the regimen is simply too toxic for them, you can always modify your plan, dose reduce, take out the adriamycin, but at least you gave it a shot and you treated them with curative intent. So I will almost always start with rituximab CHOP and scale down if it's poorly tolerated. Let's talk a little about abstract 8011, which looks at the issue of rituximab maintenance and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Sure. So just to remind you what this trial was designed to show, this was a North American intergroup trial comparing CHOP versus rituximab CHOP in elderly patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, similar question to what was addressed in the GILA trial. But there was also a second randomization in the North American trial, which compared a strategy of no maintenance versus maintenance rituximab, where the rituximab is administered as four weekly doses every six months for a total of two years. And this study was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2006. And really the take-home message from the initial publication was that rituximab added to CHOP chemotherapy showed a benefit in terms of event-free survival and overall survival similar to what was seen in the GILA study, which we just discussed. There was no benefit seen for maintenance rituxan in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma for patients who received a rituximab CHOP induction. There was a benefit for maintenance rituxan for patients who received a CHOP induction, but since rituximab CHOP had become the standard, the current thought was then there is no role for maintenance therapy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma as long as the patient is treated with rituximab CHOP chemotherapy. Now, an interesting finding from the initial publication was this finding that patients who received CHOP chemotherapy had an improvement in their event-free survival. It almost suggested that a patient receiving CHOP chemotherapy who was destined to relapse perhaps could be prevented from relapsing with the application of the maintenance rituximab. And so this particular presentation at ASCO I thought was very useful because it showed that the patients treated with CHOP chemotherapy followed by maintenance rituximab eventually do recur. They just recur later. In other words, their inevitable relapse is delayed by the maintenance rituximab. And maintenance rituximab cannot, it appears, take a patient who is destined to relapse and turn them into a cure. And it doesn't seem like it has that much in terms of practical implications in practice. And also, what about biologic implications? I would agree with you in terms of practical implications. This update from this particular abstract really does not have practical implications. I think it was more interesting from just the standpoint of 
study design and future study planning, you know, where it may turn out to be a useful finding or a practical finding would be the following scenario. If you have, let's say, an elderly patient who cannot take rituximab CHOP chemotherapy because of comorbidities or inability to tolerate the regimen, there certainly may be selected patients in which maintenance rituximab may help delay their recurrence. But what would they be treated with initially? So let's take the example of, now I'm extrapolating data, of course, and I can't back this up with data, but if you have an elderly patient with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who you can't get through curative therapy, so let's say you treat them with RCVP or RCEPP or something like that, where we think the regimen does not have really the curative potential of rituximab CHOP, and you know that patient is going to relapse, there may be some benefit for maintenance rituxan in selected instances, or a patient who relapsed after autologous transplantation, for example. So I think the study does show that there can be some benefit for patients who receive maintenance rituxan if they don't receive the optimal induction therapy. And so hopefully the majority of your patients can receive the optimal induction therapy and can be cured, but certainly in the real world there will be a handful of patients who can't receive optimal induction therapy for whatever reason. And I think in selected patients, maintenance rituximab may help delay their inevitable recurrence. Do you think that the data suggests that there's a synergy of using rituximab and CHOP or chemotherapy together as opposed to, you know, sequentially? I think the data from this trial would suggest more of an additive effect as opposed to a synergistic effect, actually. And I think that is a more popular notion right now, that the drug is probably more of an additive drug than a synergistic drug. Where are we right now in terms of our maintenance with indolent disease and specifically your resort trial and other efforts in that area? So maintenance rituximab in follicular lymphoma and other indolent lymphomas is really in a state of flux right now. There have been two very large randomized trials that showed big benefits for maintenance rituximab administered for two years, but unfortunately the patient populations in which the benefit was demonstrated are patient populations that are hard to come by with current treatments. So specifically, an ECOG study, ECOG protocol 1496, showed a very large benefit in terms of progression-free survival when maintenance rituximab was administered after CVP chemotherapy, but the induction was not rituximab CVP chemotherapy. There was another trial done in Europe published just within the last six months in which they showed a very large benefit for maintenance rituximab administered after our CHOP chemotherapy for patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma. So the question on everybody's mind right now is what happens if you give a patient, say, rituxan CHOP or rituxan CVP as their initial therapy? Should those patients receive maintenance rituximab for two years? And frankly, we just don't know the answer to that question. The study that will answer that question is called the PRIMA trial. It's ongoing in Europe right now. They've already accrued about 1,000 patients, and so probably in a few years, once there are enough events, we'll know the answer to that question. But at the moment, nobody really knows what the right answer is. And I think if you poll community physicians or lymphoma specialists around the country, you'll see a wide variety of approaches right now in which some people are choosing to administer maintenance and some people are choosing not to administer maintenance in the absence of data. So it really comes down to how comfortable are you extrapolating the existing data to the frontline setting. Can you talk a little bit about the resort trial, the design, and where you're at right now? Sure. So the resort trial, which I'm the principal investigator of, is a randomized phase three clinical trial that's testing two different rituximab dosing strategies. 
The trial is for patients with untreated, low tumor burden, indolent lymphoma. Most of the patients on the study will have follicular lymphoma. The total accrual goal for the study is 500 patients, and right now we have about 400, and so enrollment should complete sometime in the summer of 2008. And really what it's looking at is a strategy of rituximab administered on an as-needed basis, in other words, four weekly doses repeated at each progression, versus a strategy of administering a single dose of maintenance rituximab every three months until disease progression. So it's comparing continual rituximab treatment as opposed to intermittent rituximab treatment. And I think once the trial is mature and completed, it will really help clarify the optimal way to give rituximab in the post-remission setting. Let's talk a little bit about a paper that Julie Vose presented, 8013, looking at I-131 tocitumumab. Yes. This is a phase two study from the lymphoma group at the University of Nebraska. It was presented by Dr. Vose at the oral lymphoma session. And what they're really testing here is the contribution of I-131 tocitumumab, also known as Bexar, to a standard conditioning regimen, the BEAM regimen, administered for patients with relapsed chemotherapy-sensitive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So as you know, for younger patients who have relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, there is still another opportunity for cure, and that opportunity is with high-dose chemotherapy, such as the BEAM regimen, followed by autologous hematopoietic stem cell rescue. But even with those strategies, a substantial fraction, perhaps 40-50% of patients, will still relapse after stem cell transplantation. And so an area of great interest is trying to further improve the conditioning regimens that are used at the time of stem cell transplantation. In the past, a commonly used strategy was the incorporation of total body irradiation, which does improve outcomes in terms of disease-free survival somewhat, but this is often offset by toxicities, early and late toxicities, and a real interest is in the application of so-called targeted radiation and that is the impetus for the addition of the I-131 tocitumumab to the BEAM regimen. So the way their treatment schema worked was that patients would receive their therapeutic dose of I-131 tocitumumab about two weeks prior to their planned transplant. And the dose of I-131 tocitumumab used is the standard dosing that is the commercially approved dose, which is 75 centigrade total body dose. After the administration of the I-131 tocitumumab, the patients would then receive a beam conditioning regimen, and then following the administration of the conditioning regimen, they receive their autologous stem cell reinfusion. So they reported the results of this treatment protocol at the meeting. Now, they had a mix of patients in this study. They had a group of patients who were in first relapse, who were chemosensitive, They had a group of patients who were in first partial remission. So in other words, patients who had received, say, rituximab CHOP, but did not go into complete response. And then they also had a group of patients who were in complete remission after rituximab CHOP, but were felt to be at high risk for recurrence based upon high or high intermediate IPI score. In this particular analysis, they reported the results on 40 patients, and the breakdown of their patients according to state at transplant was 33% of patients in complete remission 1, 12% 12% in partial remission 1, 22% in complete remission 2, and 32% in partial remission 2. 
So they show very impressive results in terms of the event-free survival. The three-year progression-free survival in this cohort of 40 patients was 70%, which is certainly a little better than one would expect with historical controls. Now, the results might be slightly inflated by the inclusion of patients who are in first complete remission, and so you have to take that into consideration when analyzing this data. But nonetheless, the data are encouraging enough, I think, that this forms the basis for a randomized phase three study that's being done through the BMT-CTN, which stands for the Bone Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network. And that's a randomized phase three clinical trial, which is comparing this what we call Bexar beam conditioning regimen to a standard rituxan beam conditioning regimen to see if the addition of Bexar to the beam conditioning regimen can really improve the cure rate associated with autologous stem cell transplantation. That's an ongoing phase three clinical trial being conducted throughout the United States right now. I would encourage sites that have the option of participating in this very important phase three trial to do so because I do feel like results with autologous stem cell transplant in relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma have really been stagnant for about the last 10 or 15 years. And this represents an opportunity to try to make an improvement for this group of patients. There was another paper presented by the GILA group, Abstract 8012. Can you talk about that? That was in poor risk diffuse large B-cell. So this was a randomized phase three trial from the French cooperative group GILA, And this was a trial for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that was previously untreated. And they have a strategy in the GILA for high-risk patients in which they administer a fairly aggressive chemotherapy regimen that's somewhat more aggressive than CHOP called ACVBP, which includes adriamycin, cyclophosphamide, a drug called vindicine, which is not available in the U.S., bleomycin, and prednisone. And after four cycles of that, Patients who have responded receive high-dose chemotherapy with the CBV conditioning regimen and autologous stem cell transplant reinfusion. And the study question in this particular study was, would the addition of a single course of rituximab post-transplant improve the event-free survival rate? So this was a randomized clinical trial trying to answer the question of post-transplant rituximab. And so they reported here mature data on their cohort. It was a younger group of patients. The study was limited to patients under the age of 60, had to have untreated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with high-risk features, meaning age-adjusted IPI risk score of 2 to 3, which would predict a fairly high risk of recurrence. So in this particular trial, which was quite large, they randomized 470 patients, and they reported the results of the post-transplant randomization at the meeting. Now, because of dropout due to lack of response to the induction regimen or toxicity precluding the administration of rituximab. When you actually look at the post-transplant randomization, there were 139 patients who received rituximab post-transplant and 130 who received observation. What the trial does show is a trend in terms of improvement in event-free survival. So at four years, the probability of remaining event-free for the group who received rituximab post-transplant was 80% as opposed to 70% for the group who received observation. This, however, did not meet statistical significance, and there was no improvement in the overall survival. So while an interesting results, I don't really view this as a practice-changing presentation, and I see that this particular cooperative group 
has decided not to pursue this strategy in their future trials. In other words, they're not going to pursue the strategy of post-transplant rituximab, and they're going to pursue a strategy of rituximab administered with their ACVBP chemotherapy. The last paper I want to ask you about is another study from GILA, this time looking at two different schedules of RCHOP plus bortezomib, a randomized phase two study. So this was really a pilot study from the GILA, and what they're really trying to sort out here is, can you add bortezomib to rituxan-CHOP chemotherapy? And if you do so, what sort of toxicities are you going to run into? It was somewhat of a dose-finding study. They also wanted to look at two different dosing strategies for the bortezomib, a weekly dosing strategy or two times a week dosing strategy as used when bortezomib is given as a single agent. So the trial was for patients with untreated B-cell lymphoma, but they included a variety of histologies, including mantle cell, marginal zone, small lymphocytic, transformed lymphoma, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And there was an initial randomization to patients enrolled in the study to either the bortezomib administered twice a week or weekly. And the patients who started at twice a week dosing received one milligram per meter squared on days 1, 4, 8, and 11 of each 21-day cycle. The patients randomized to the weekly dosing started out at a dose of 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on days 1 and 8. Now, the once-a-week dosing clearly has some appeal just from a convenience standpoint and a practicality standpoint. It's fairly cumbersome to have patients come back to the clinic for three extra trips between each 21-day cycle of rituximab-CHOP. If these two dosing schedules were well-tolerated, then there was a planned dose escalation in which the patients on the biweekly dosing schedule would move up to 1.3 milligrams per meter squared with each dose, and the patients receiving the weekly dosing would move up to 1.6 milligrams per meter squared with each dose. So in this particular study, there were a total of 49 patients enrolled, 20 in the biweekly dosing and 29 in the weekly dosing. And the first two dosing arms were fairly well tolerated. And so after completion of step one, they moved to the step two dosing in which they increased the dose of bortezomib to 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on the biweekly dosing and 1.6 milligrams per meter squared in the weekly dosing. And really the take-home message of this particular presentation was that the rate of peripheral neuropathy became excessive when the increased dose of bortezomib was added. And that was true for both cohorts. So when administered with CHOP chemotherapy, a bortezomib dose of 1.3 milligrams per meter squared given on days 1, 4, 8, and 11 resulted in an excessive rate of grade 3 and 4 peripheral neuropathy. And a dose of 1.6 milligrams per meter squared on days 1 and 8 resulted in an excessive rate of grade 3 and 4 peripheral neuropathy. Now, the response rates were impressive. They achieved complete response rates of 90% in the biweekly dosing and 78% in the weekly dosing. And if you look at the whole cohort, the complete response rate was 83%. So that's certainly encouraging, although we can't draw two definitive conclusions given the wide variety of histologies included in this patient population. Probably encouraging enough that this combination of rituximab-CHOP plus bortezomib should be studied further, but I thought the study was very informative telling us that peripheral neuropathy when bortezomib is combined with a vinca alkaloid like vincristine has to be done with great caution and certainly the step two dose and schedules used in this study prove that painful peripheral neuropathy can become excessive at the dose and schedules used in this trial. There are ongoing studies looking at the addition of bortezomib to rituximab-CHOP chemotherapy that people should be aware of. The Southwest Oncology Group 
is doing a trial in untreated mantle cell lymphoma in which bortezomib is added to rituximab CHOP chemotherapy. And the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group is doing a trial in which bortezomib is added to a modified hypercevad chemotherapy. So the idea of adding bortezomib to a standard lymphoma regimen is being pursued in untreated mantle cell lymphoma in the U.S. cooperative groups right now. So the modified hypercevad regimen is the one you developed, correct? That's correct. How do you think that's going to play out by adding in bortezomib? Well, I've been piloting that combination at the University of Wisconsin for the last two years, and I have about 20 patients enrolled in that trial, and I presented some preliminary data at the ASCO meeting this year. And in my experience, giving a bortezomib dose of 1.3 milligrams per meter squared with a vincristine dose of 2 milligrams on each 21-day cycle results in excessive neurotoxicity. And so for the ECOG version of the trial, we've actually cut the vincristine dose down to one milligram. And in my own pilot data, that appears to be a much better tolerated strategy. So I do have considerable concerns regarding the addition of bortezomib to regimens that contain vinca alkaloids. I do feel like it does need to be studied. Certainly in mantle cell, lymphoma results are very suboptimal and we need better strategies. Now, despite the peripheral neuropathy I'm reporting, we are seeing very high complete remission rates of around 80% in my pilot study being done at the University of Wisconsin. So we do believe this is an active regimen. We do believe we've worked out the peripheral neuropathy issues to a large extent. And I think the time is right to test this kind of a strategy in the cooperative group setting. Probably the only other abstract that stuck out in my mind in the heme malignancy field would be an update from the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group of a trial in untreated multiple myeloma in which Revlimid was combined with two different dexamethasone strategies, what they called a high-dose dex strategy and a low-dose dexamethasone strategy. And for a long time, it's been very popular to use high-dose dexamethasone with different treatment regimens in multiple myeloma. But what the ECOG data showed was an excessive rate of toxicity, including death, which resulted in inferior overall survival for the high-dose dexamethasone arm. And so the ECOG trial was actually closed at an interim analysis due to the excessive rate of death in the high-dose dexamethasone arm. And the result with the lenalidomide and low-dose dex was extremely impressive and really forms, I think, a backbone regimen that people can build upon now.